Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Ido Bock in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 13th of November. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. All right, Ido, we're here on Friday the 13th, 2020. What could go wrong? How is Berlin? On this very inauspicious day. Berlin is sort of quite quiet. We're now back in lockdown as of, I think, a week ago. So life is just going at a slower pace. I was in self-isolation because I had coronavirus and I sort of expected to emerge from my room like a, you know, chrysalis from a cocoon but in fact it's just almost as boring as being inside my room because everything almost everything is closed and how is dc first of all i am glad you're feeling better and have recovered from the coronavirus second of all you know dc we'll talk about it more over the course of the podcast is currently you know swept up in the machinations of a president who is refusing to concede and also like the rest of the country or almost all of the rest of the country facing uncontrolled spread of the pandemic and unlike you we are not in lockdown so we can imagine that it will continue to get worse, particularly as Americans go into, into holiday season. On that cheery note, we have a very exciting guest this week. But first, very quickly, Ido, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? As you said a few times, like sometimes we pick moments that, like not to give the game away, but probably aren't going to be written about in the history books. But, there, but this week, there has been a truly historic moment, I think, which is the signing of a ceasefire deal between Armenia and Azerbaijan which should end the second Nagorno-Karabakh war, which had been raging for about six weeks. This is a really historic deal that completely reshapes the map of the South Caucasus and entrenches some new outside actors in what had traditionally been Russia's backyard, in particular Turkey. It's a really significant deal for a whole bunch of reasons, including that it's one of the only times in recent history that on Europe's doorstep, there has been an attempt to redraw borders essentially with force. So this deal gives the, arguably gives the stamp of approval to Azerbaijan's campaign of conquest to regain the land that it had lost in the 1990s. And also it's shown Europe to be completely ineffective in mediating a very violent conflict right on its doorstep. And what's your moment? My moment does not have the same historical... Well, maybe it does. We'll see. My moment is that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked this week about the transition between Trump and Biden and sort of smirked and said there will be a smooth transition to a second term of the Trump administration. And then 
when asked about the example that this was setting for the world, berated the journalist and said, that's a ridiculous question. You know, some people have said, oh, he was joking. And I would just like to say, I don't think it's funny that our top diplomat answered the question thusly. I think that this kind of rhetoric will be used by other leaders throughout the world. And also, you know, that's what the Secretary of State is communicating to the rest of the world, even while foreign leaders are calling President-elect Biden to congratulate him. So I th- I personally will remember it, particularly when Pompeo stages his potential presidential run in, in four or eight or however many years. With that, on to our guest. We are extremely, as I said, excited because our guest this week is Evan Osnos. He is a New Yorker staff writer and the author of the new book, which if you're in the United States is called Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. And if you are in the UK, is called Joe Biden, American Dreamer. Evan, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in writing this book, you know, you interviewed Biden, you had interviews with over 100 other people. So knowing the subject as you do, was there anything in the past, the, the very eventful past week or weeks that, that surprised you about what he's said or done or how he's handled himself? Or has it sort of confirmed your your priors about who Joe Biden is? Well, I do think it has had an interesting effect in helping us update our current understanding of Joe Biden. By that, I mean, you know, look, for years, a lot of us who have written about politics tended to describe him as a kind of improvisational politician. He was prone to gaffes. There was a kind of constant inventory of the ways in which he would follow his instincts in the moment and end up saying something he had to apologize for and so on. And what we've actually seen in the last crucial period here has been this remarkably disciplined, methodical operation, not only in terms of what he says and how he says it, but also how his campaign has contended with this truly bizarre spectacle of an outgoing president who is operating in a kind of fantasy land that has no relationship to actually what's happening with the votes on the ground. That is interesting because it's a choice. It's a measure of their instincts, I think, and also of the campaign's operation. And it does give us a preview of, of the kind of what I would, what I think is the kind of core fact about them now and about Biden at this point in his life, which is a deep seriousness. And that's one of the surprises that came through in my own experience with him and with those around him. This is a grave moment. And to draw a contrast with Mike Pompeo making kind of if, it, if that's what it was, making a joke out of the question of a peaceful transfer of power in the United States. On the other side of things, we're dealing with a group that takes this extremely seriously. There's a lot to to unpack there. But the thing that I want to start with is, um, do you think that it's that Joe Biden has changed or, or that the campaign is different or alternatively that this element of him has always been there and it happens to meet this moment that we're in now? That's a really interesting way of framing it. And I think it is in some sense that latter in in that Joe Biden has always been this alchemy, this complicated chemistry of ambition and belief in public service, belief in the in the fundamental importance of government as a source of human thriving, as, a, as a, an instrument in making people's lives better. And at various points, one or the other has sort of been at the fore And I think what you have seen over the course of his life, and this is where the personal and the political are intertwined for him, is that as he has reached this point, the, you know, call it what it is, the eighth decade of his life, there is a more settled man before us. There is somebody who is more 
he's quieter. As a literal matter, I think the death of his son, Bo, in 2015 was, which was, after all, the most recent in a series of humblings by the fates, that that was a moment in which he became a, a more contemplative, a more reflective person, and somebody who then, he never had to run for president after that, after all. I mean, he could have very easily slipped off into the semi-retirement of post-vice presidency and lived a very comfortable unhurried life. And the fact that he did choose to get back into this was, I think, only partly a matter of personal ambition. Anybody who runs for president, if they're not deluded, will recognize that. But it was also a real recognition of a kind of moral emergency facing the United States. And he took a look at the field and realized, I think I can win this I'm, I'm a stronger candidate than the other Democrats in the field. And, the, and he, he was proven right on that. Before I let Ido come in, I just want to follow up on that. What, obviously, it, it, he was proven right and, and indeed was able to not just beat the vast field of candidates, but to beat Trump. But there's been so much written and said about why that was, right? What about Joe Biden? Let him beat these other candidates. Let him beat Trump. What do you think it was? I think it was partly a political analysis that he and his advisors made that was more or less lampooned and rejected by the political press corps and, and more or less everybody else in politics at the, at the outset, which was they judged the Democratic electorate and then more broadly the American electorate as more centrist than it's usually described in our kind of usual reporting, meaning they took a look at the Democrats and they said, if you look at survey data and you sort of brush away some of the fluff on the surface, what you discover is that most Democrats describe themselves as moderate or conservative Democrats. And so even though a lot of people in the political observation business tend to pay attention to the frontier of the party, the AOC and Bernie Sanders and some of the more progressive Democrats, that's actually not where most Americans are in 2020. That may be where they are in 2024 or 2028, but that's simply not where they are in 2020. And that turned out to be this this firm foundation on which the campaign ultimately succeeded. And I think that's especially true, and this is one of the things we sometimes miss when we look at it with shorthand descriptions from afar, that Many black voters, particularly older black voters, describe themselves in more conservative terms than younger voters or other parts of the Democratic electorate. And so when the time came, when it was sort of that crucial moment to decide whether or not Joe Biden was going to be the nominee or whether his campaign was going to fail, it was, in fact, older black voters, particularly in South Carolina, who delivered it for him. There's a larger fact in that, but I, I think that's sort of the piece of this that we didn't get. It tends to be the political reporters are younger, more progressive, living on the coasts, and they looked at Joe Biden and said, this guy's an antique. He doesn't look anything like what I think of democratic politics, and it turned out actually he looked more like the country. I want to riff off that theme slightly and ask you about a remark that one of Joe Biden's advisors says, I think this week or last week. The remark was... Joe Biden ignored Twitter. He didn't look at Twitter at all. And kind of if you unpack that, what you find out from that is Twitter is a kind of it's shorthand for an extremely engaged clique of the kinds of people who talked about political journalists, advisors, activists, um, who, like, generally speaking, can be said to hold views that 
apparently are quite far from the mainstream of the democratic electorate and like the country at large, as you've just referred to. Based on what you know of Joe Biden as a candidate, how does that kind of ignoring ignoring Twitter, turning off Twitter fit into his strategy and did it pay off? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think it's actually a key piece of the story. I mean, I was talking to him at his house this summer and I explored this question, essentially, how, how much of a participant are you in the social media era? And he said, look, I don't look at it. It, meaning, <laughs> meaning essentially the realm of Twitter and, uh, and other social media. Now, the, you know, his campaign gives him in the morning a list of important tweets that are relevant for him that might give him an insight that he wouldn't otherwise have. You know, there's obviously something decidedly old school about, I don't know if it's literally printed out and given to him, but it's on his phone and he, and he reads through that as part of his daily briefing. But what's interesting is I think that insulated him from being buffeted by the, not just the daily ambient wind of American politics, but the hourly, almost down to the minute turbulence that can be so challenging for a campaign to navigate because they're constantly trying to how to stay one tweet ahead of history. And in the Biden campaign's case, they just didn't. They decided early on that that was a piece of the puzzle, but not a big piece of the puzzle. So they they had to figure out a way not to ignore it completely because then they would end up utterly out of touch, but they they didn't want to overstate its importance. And I think that was part of the reason why they succeeded. They they said to me at one point, Kate Benningfield, who's the... um, head of communications for the campaign said to me, we're just not going to spend our days in Twitter wars with our opponents or with anybody else. That's just not actually how Americans think. Look, the risk here now is that that could become a really hubristic problem. That if they if they said, okay, because we didn't pay attention to Twitter, we know better, that you could end up really insulated and secluded from useful information. And so the challenge for them will be they have to build that into their decision-making matrix without becoming captive to it in a way that that hobbles them. Just expanding on that, there's obviously the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party who are hugely popular in among parts of the progressive electorate in the US and also abroad. And a large part of that is like AOC being very good on Twitter, right? But... Is there a danger of overstating how significant they are and kind of like who is the future of the Democratic Party? Is it AOC with her sharp put downs on Twitter or is it Biden and, and his advisors who kind of, you know, get a list of tweets printed every day but, but stay out of the fray? I mean, I think it's clear that the future probably looks a lot more like AOC. And, you know, that is because, you know, she is fluent in a mode of communication that is essential to how we actually conduct politics today. But like so many things, you know, we tend to kind of describe these as as polar facts or either one or the other. Interestingly, you know what I found fascinating is that Ron Klain, who has been chosen as Biden's chief of staff, that was just the news of the last few days, occupies this middle place between them. I mean, it's worth noting AOC cheered the news of his selection, and so did conservatives. Ron Klain is one of the, perhaps the last man in Washington who is popular across the political spectrum. But interestingly, he's also very adept at social media. He's had a pretty good run on Twitter. He has a big following and he uses it. You know, he's got just enough humor without being silly, all the kind of stuff that makes 
effective Twitter. He's also, you know, I'm making this up. Ron's probably in his late 50s, early 60s. He can attack me if I've got that wrong. But, you know, I've talked to Ron a lot and he's, he, he understands both what it takes to be serious and also what it takes to be relevant. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was a pretty shrewd pick because you can't choose to be just one or the other. Ron Klein, I just looked this up, is 59. So in fact, he cannot attack you because you got it perfectly right. Looking from the from the distant future of the Democratic Party to sort of the near future of American politics, obviously, Ron Klein will be the, the chief of staff. We have some names that have come out about the transition team. Looking at the the groups that have been assembled so far, the names that have been announced so far or floated so far, what do you think we can expect from the first term or even just the first months of a Biden administration in terms of who he's chosen to surround himself with? Well, it matters hugely who controls the Congress, obviously. We won't Mm -hmm. know that until January and and the effects of the runoff. The reason why that matters for staffing, of course, is that it also constrains who he can put forward for Senate confirmation. I think if Democrats were in charge of the Congress, then you could see more progressive contenders in major cabinet posts. I'm not saying this was going to happen, but Elizabeth Warren obviously is interested in being Secretary of the Treasury. You've heard of Bernie Sanders putting his name forward to be Secretary of Labor. If Mitch McConnell, the Republican majority leader, is controlling the process of confirmation, those ideas become implausible. So then you end up with more centrist contenders. It also applies to the Secretary of State. You know, it's possible that if Republicans are in control, that Susan Rice, who is a very strong candidate for Secretary of State, might end up losing that opportunity because Republicans will dredge up the Benghazi episode, which is, you know, not worth us going into all the details, but is a sort of basically is a political football that they continue to use and would try to use it to undermine her candidacy. In that case, you might end up with somebody like Chris Coons, who is the Democratic senator from Delaware, a moderate figure close to Biden, but because of the the old traditions of the Senate would probably have an easy ride through confirmation because they tend to give fellow senators a pass. And you could see this affecting some of the choices in other in other cabinet positions as well. To get to your broader question, which is how does it affect his legislative agenda? It affects it dramatically. I mean, he there is just a world of difference between being able to undertake a full slate of progressive ambitions and being forced to deal with this very contested, narrow bandwidth of legislating space. I will tell you one other thing, which is kind of interesting, which is that I don't think the Biden campaign would ever say this themselves, but is a fact that curiously having Republicans in control of the Senate actually simplifies things a little bit for the Biden, because that means that they can sort of say to the progressive end of their party, hey, we would love to do these things, but Mitch McConnell won't let us. And that can quiet one of the big issues they're going to be dealing with, which is internal divisions within the Democratic Party. Well, so this is the next thing that I wanted to ask you, which is that there's this line of thinking or line of argument that goes, well, Biden never really wanted to do any of these, didn't really want to push X policy through Congress or didn't actually want Warren or Sanders in the cabinet. And that that unity between the different branches or wings or parts of the party, that was just for the election. And now we're just going to be at each other's <laughs> at each other's throats within you know the democratic uh, world. What do you make of that? Do you think that it was all, you know, that it was sort of lip service to progressives during the election? 
I don't think it was lip service. I think it was, you know, there are pieces of that that can all be true at once in the sense that, look, I actually, I'm not convinced that Joe Biden does want Elizabeth Warren as Secretary of the Treasury. I think Mm -hmm. she is more progressive than he is. It also, it's true that she has such a, a sophisticated policy shop in her office. I mean, they are really ready to go. I mean, they have, it's a cliche about her having plans, but the truth is they are ready to go. They know exactly what they want to do. They're kind of fully worked out. And that can be hard, actually, for a president because he would be a president who is trying to compose a living, breathing platform that is capable of absorbing all of these different equities. That's very different than than Elizabeth Warren, who is prosecuting her plan as good as that plan is. So there, there are reasons why he might not have wanted her to be Secretary of the Treasury anyway. But that's a separate question from whether it was a kind of sort of insincere stunt on the part of the Biden campaign to pay lip service to the left in order to keep them on side for the election. And I think that's that's actually not quite giving it the full treatment. I mean, if you listen to how they really talked about policy in the months after the primary, it was really remarkable to see this bizarre behavior of a Democratic nominee, which is instead of running to the center, as they usually do, he ran to the left and he made substantive choices. He embraced Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy plan in many respects, which was a, a rebuke to some of the work that he did in the Senate when he was actually against that plan. And he also adopted pieces of Bernie Sanders's college tuition program. If you talk to Sanders about it, Sanders does not think it's insincere. Sanders believes that Joe Biden has listened to him, as Sanders says, he's listened to me over the decades. He just does. He doesn't absorb every, he doesn't take on and do everything I ask him to do, but he listens to me in a serious way. And and that is meaningful. So I think Biden is, in many ways, he's doing exactly what it looks like he's doing, which is that he's trying to manage these very different wings of his own party while basically staying true to his instincts, which are center left. So Biden's not going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly announce that he's going to be the Medicare for all president. But at the same time, he's pretty zealous about climate. He's pretty serious about economic issues and about reforming capitalism. So there are things on which he is becoming progressive, and there are things in which I think he's, he's going to be slower to move in that direction. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. As well as being a biographer of Joe Biden, you're also a longtime China correspondent. And uh, we got a really good question from a reader, which... I was overruled for you ask us, but it's really good. So I'm going to ask it anyway. Given your experience of China, what do you think Biden's approach will be to Chinese-American relations, in particular around issues, uh, potential flashpoints, such as Taiwan and Hong Kong, where recent in recent years during the Trump term, there's been a lot of tension? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting domain to look at the differences and weirdly, actually, some of the some of the similarities between a Biden era and a Trump era on U.S.-China relations. I mean, the short answer is that there's a lot about the Trump administration policy on China that the Biden team considers amateurish, improvisational, ideologically blinded. To cut off the number of Chinese students coming to the United States, for instance, was a, a gesture that a, that the Biden administration would not want to do, you know, closing off 
sources of American funding for scholars and students to go abroad to learn about China. All of those kinds of what we think of as kind of more psychological gestures, these artifacts of the Cold War, that's less popular with the Biden Biden China team. But what they do agree with and what they will happily borrow from is the leverage that comes from all of the things that the Trump administration put in place. So for instance, you will not see a Biden administration simply roll back tariffs on Chinese goods without getting something in return from China. So they'll use some of that overhang in order to be able to extract some meaningful progress on issues that they care about, like intellectual property theft, market access. So it's a it's a case in which they can be quite sort of pitying and sneering about the Trump administration's somewhat chaotic approach on China. But at the same time, they're happy to use some elements of it to set the foundation for their own period of, of relations. And on that note, it's now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman like to call. You ask us. Okay, so here's the question with which I overruled Ido and said we had to move China into the main <laughs> into the main conversation. Okay, so this comes to us from Dan in Liverpool, and Dan has helpfully specified the one in the UK. Thank you, Dan. He wants to know, how significant do you think the support of ex-Republican voters, e.g. Lincoln Project people, was for Biden winning? Well, this is a very contested point. By the way, I want to know where the Liverpool in the United States is. Anyway, I was also we'll, curious. We'll, but... we'll, we'll, we'll put that aside for the moment. I, I think this is a very contested point, a really interesting point. I, what you hear now is the, you know, the Lincoln Project itself has cast some light on on some data that would suggest that something like 7% of the Trump voters in 2016 became Biden voters this time. 8% of Republicans or independents who lean Republican backed Biden. The Lincoln Project is saying this is evidence of our of our useful effect. You know, the Lincoln Project's opponents, meaning progressive Democrats, are inclined to disagree with that. They say, in fact, they don't see as much of a meaningful change. And more importantly, they think on a policy basis that progressive agenda has been more helpful. This is not going to be resolved today. I, I think the fact is that what we know is that 70 million Americans still cast ballots for Donald Trump, despite knowing everything they know about him. So there is some large basis of support for him. And yet around the edges, there really were people who kind of sloughed off of the Trump phenomenon and moved over to Biden. And we don't have the data yet to know exactly how important the Lincoln Project was. I can tell you just sort of on a purely kind of pop culture consumer basis, it was fascinating to see the way that the Lincoln Project was using some of the cut and thrust that they had used so effectively against Democrats for years, now turned on their own tribe. And I wonder what the overall effect is going to be, that there you may find that they have ushered in an era of more acerbic politics from Democratic candidates who now see, okay, there is a whole realm of communication we can be using. I mean, the Biden campaign was being kind of relentlessly positive in its messaging. Sure, they ran some negative ads against against Trump, but in the primary, for instance, they basically avoided criticizing other Democrats with rare exceptions. So I think it, the Lincoln Project may have a dove, another effect, which is changing somewhat of the Overton window on Democratic messaging in the future. The only thing I would add to that is that I think when we look back on this, the stories of the kind of, you know, groups and organizers that we'll, we'll remember are 
those of local organizers. The fact that Arizona and Georgia both mm-hmm. flipped right after that was a decade long project in Arizona and is kind of beyond the scope of this podcast because it's not it's not just about Trump or Biden. It's about politics and state more generally. Or I think you could say the same for Georgia with Fair Fight and New Georgia. And if Dan or other listeners are interested in the groups that kind of got out the vote in specific states, that's where I would look. And I would also say, to your point, Evan, that it's part of why we're going to continue to litigate this, the success of the Lincoln Project, because already you're seeing they are saying, well, we're going to be involved in the fight in, in Georgia. And other people are saying, well, no, we should be giving to these local groups. So that's mm-hmm. another one to watch between now and uh, now in January. Mm-hmm. Also, I would say, you know, in Arizona, there was one other piece of the puzzle, which is a very strong Democratic candidate, Mark Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, very popular, you know, had put in a lot of hard work to get himself into that position. So right now we're in the phase, the inevitable phase where everybody is taking credit. And it'll be a while before we know. But what we're kind of hovering around is this really interesting question, which is how should progressives deal with the opportunities and the problems of a Biden presidency. Mm -hmm. And I'm often reminded of this really interesting interview I had with Varshini Prakash, who's a progressive activist, one of the co-founders of the Sunrise Movement, which is a really effective climate change group. And she and I talked about this very thing, which is how you're going to deal with the, if the dog catches the car and you actually end up in the position of power. And she said, for us at that point, we're going to have to make this choice, we as progressives, about whether we more or less sort of turn on Biden at the first sign of him not doing what we want, or do we try to find what she called a kind of middle path between complacency and righteousness? And I took that as a useful set of guardrails for myself as I think about the months ahead, how to find that middle path between kind of going along with whatever Biden chooses to do, or becoming as much a source of obstruction to him as the Republicans will be, because somewhere in between is probably the the most progressive route. Thanks to everyone who sent in your questions, even if we had to jam them into the main section rather than you ask us. Keep them coming at youaskus.co.uk and look up for our announcement of our guest next week on our international Twitter account at Statesman World. As ever, for our final segment, we are going to take a look ahead. Evan, what in global affairs will you be keeping an eye on or watching closely next week? Well, I am, even though I'm in kind of personally always interested in things beyond our borders, it's kind of where I spent most of my life, I am here, you know, sitting next to the burning volcano of the Trump administration. And for that yes. reason, <laughs> I am looking to see what's going to be the body language around the inevitable recognition that Donald Trump is on the way out. How does the rest of his party deal with that? How do they talk about it? How clear are they to recognize what he probably will never recognize by name, which is that he has been repudiated by a plurality of Americans and for that reason is being ushered off the stage. But the way that the rest of his party talks about it and deals with it is hugely important for what the future of American politics looks like. So I'll be listening for that. And I will be jumping off of that, looking at um, the certification of the states and how, so basically the states need to certify their final results before we can head to the Electoral College, before Congress can meet, before we have the inauguration, and whether Trump's legal challenges to stop the certification in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, which is highly unlikely, but you know it's 
it's a possibility, right? What what happens there? Basically, I'll be watching whether the states are able to go through the certification process, so that we can move closer to to the reality to reality in our political discourse, right? Which is that Joe Biden won this election, yeah. And can we kind of get to a place where people in power are on the same page there? Because I think, regardless of what happens next, millions of people because of Trump will will believe that this was illegitimate. Anyway, Ido, what will you be looking out for? I will be looking at Brussels. So I've, I've got to admit that I. I don't follow this closely enough to know which are real Brexit deadlines and which are not. And there is a deadline every week, and but you know some of them don't matter and some of them do. But apparently, the one next week is a fairly significant one. And if there isn't significant movement between the EU and the UK on the shape of a deal or a draft deal, then no deal, a no deal Brexit at the end of the year looks quite likely. So I'll be looking at a summit that they're having in Brussels, I believe, on Thursday. With that, all that remains is to say thank you to Evan Osnos for for joining us. Evan, thank you so much. My pleasure. It was great to be with you. As a reminder, Evan's new book is called Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now if you're American and if you're British, Joe Biden, American Dreamer. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review and tell your friends about it. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter also called World Review, at newstatesbin.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesbin.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.